Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. With me today is CEO and CIO, Chris Wallace. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Dan. So, Chris, the markets continue their strong rally off of last week. Um, and, you know, this week we saw a little bit of a leadership change. And we finally saw some small caps outperforming large caps, and we saw value outperforming growth. Do you believe this rotation to value and the short-term momentum to the upside will continue? Uh, it certainly should over the shorter period of time. And, you know, it, it's worth highlighting when you get these sharp moves higher and like what we've seen the last couple of days, especially in the small caps or especially on the value side, moves, you know, in excess of 3% a day and 4% a day following a very strong week last week. That's indicative of a, a bear market rally. So, you know, I'm going to stick with we're still in a bear market. Um, it doesn't mean that there aren't further gains to be had. Certainly, there's still a, a large short interest out there. You're starting to see uh, some forced covering of short interest. You know, it was interesting yesterday in looking at the market action. Hertz, when it already filed bankruptcy, was actually up 130% on the day. Several companies that had filed bankruptcy were up, uh, you know, 20, 30%. And companies that or about to enter bankruptcy. Some that were, you know, three billion dollar companies back in 2018, and today are 13 million dollar companies. You know, we're up 60, 70 percent. So, you know, we're starting to look like we're getting into those later stages. And I do think this kind of rotation to value and and rotation into kind of the beaten up names is a counter trend move. It doesn't mean they weren't oversold. It doesn't mean that some of the Leaders won't give back some of those gains, but it's not the size of the market. As we highlighted last week, you know, it was a we, Monday a week ago, the short covering rally on, quote, the vaccine news from Moderna. We talked about it being a hit job by Wall Street. You know, Medina sold about $1.2 billion worth of stock, and I think the stock's down about 30% since then. So not exactly what you would call healthy underlying dynamics to this rally. Right, right. We're, we're, we're bouncing, bouncing all over the place continues. But you're staying strong in the camp. We, we haven't seen you waver too much, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll take a temperature again next week on it. But, yeah. But, you know, I have kind of a follow-up question. After, you need, you know, during the peak of the sell-off in March, right, valuations, uh, you know, I think we, we had discussed at length that we're, we're really starting to become attractive for some select securities. You know, given your, your, the comments that you just made, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the current equity market valuations um, post this market recovery. And do you think that there's still opportunities left in this market? Yeah, no, that that's spot on. Um, the rally's been powerful, and like we talked about coming into 2020, equ- U.S. equities were expensive, and so at the peak in the first quarter, you know, the Wilshire 5000 as the market cap to GDP was 1.6. Keep in mind, the long-term average is 0.8. Um, even if you adjust for you know, the period of time that was centered around higher interest rates, you're going to move up to maybe one. Uh, and then as we exited the first quarter, where we had peaked at 1.6, we came down to 1.2. With this rally, we're already back to 1.4. So in the aggregate, you know, if you go out and buy the S&P 500 today, you're going to get probably a zero um, or something close to zero for a 10-year return. Now, there are select opportunities out in the marketplace 
today. So there's still individual securities that have really lagged. Um, and there's that, quote, catch-up trade. And so if you're discerning, they're certainly out there. But we would probably be and have been um, a, a seller in a lot of regards where companies that have fully regained and fully recovered, certainly some are even up on a year-to-date basis, exit those, redeploy back into other names. But broadly speaking, um, it, the markets aren't overly attractive. Right. And, you know, okay, so markets aren't looking attractive. Maybe this is a little more positive, right? So we see the jobless claims today, uh, and we saw a modest improvement over the last week. And the initial claims, uh, you know, they, they remained elevated. Uh, but despite the level of initial claims, you know, with continuing claims actually fell, they fell by about 3.9 million. Uh, so as you track your short-term economic indicators, you know, what elements of this job data is your primary focus? Yeah, you're right to point out the improvement in continuing claims. I think that that really is what is going to be my focus. And just a little bit of a mea culpa, you know, last week we talked about uh, a further increase in initial unemployment claims, and and that data has since been revised. So one of the states fat-fingered their entry, and instead of putting in, you know, approximately 100,000 and initial claims, they put in a million. So last week was actually better than what initially was like. Just an extra zero. Just an extra zero. And, you know, not, not too surprising uh, given who's in charge of keeping these records. Uh, but really focus in on the continuing claims. Again, due to the unique nature of this recession, we're seeing a large initial claims, but we should see, if we're going to see this accelerated recovery, which I believe we are, uh, although we won't get back to a full recovery for some time, it's going to start showing up in the continuing claims. And if you think back to where we were two weeks ago, we saw an initial improvement in continuing claims. I believe there's around 400,000. Now this 3.9 million is a really good sign that people are going back to work. And anecdotally, we already know this. So the data is confirming what we know and what the market has already discounted. But again, I think what the market really hasn't focused on is while it's done a good job of uh, delineating the winners and losers on a relative basis, we talk about this overall valuation still being rich. Although, un, you know, the unemployment data is improving, we just can't lose sight of the magnitude. So even with that improvement um, of, of, you know, 3.9 million, okay, we went from 24.9 million down to 21 million in continuing unemployment claims. The last peak going back to 1967 was about 6 million during the great financial crisis. So, you know, we're still more than 300% above those levels. Those individuals receive checks, so they still have some temporary spending power, but the dislocation relative to expectations probably starts to show up in the, in the leveling off of improvement in the third quarter. So we still have a significant hill decline, but, yeah, no, the, the, the claims data is improving, and I certainly hope, I'm wrong on this, but while we're about 20% unemployment today, my guess is we settle out and kind of level off high single, low double digits, which is just a really significant impact to the economy. Right, and we still have a, a, an incredibly long way to go to, to even get yes. to those levels, right? Um, so maybe shifting gears a bit, you know, I think that folks have, have been a little distracted by the market, and we've seen this great market rally over the last few weeks, but 
you know, there's some some pretty substantial geopolitical developments that are taking place, and and you know, I'll, I'll really start namely speaking about China here, and you know, as China's furthers moves to control Hong Kong, and we saw Secretary Pompeo's declaration to Congress that Hong Kong is is really no longer sufficiently autonomous to warrant special trade status. You know, do you think that would appear to be, you know, I guess I would say that that would certainly appear to be a significant event. So the question I have for you here is, you know, do you believe that the market is correct in, in brushing off this news, or you know, what are the what are the medium to long term implications of, of rising tensions between the U.S. and China? Yeah, no, I think the the market's definitely asleep at the wheel here. I think it's an incredibly important development, and as we've talked about um, recently. You know, the the Chinese Communist Party really just showed the world their hand in, in the way they handle COVID, and so there's going to be a visceral reaction. It just happens to be occurring at a time when there's a lot of imbalances in the economy. Global trade was already under a lot of pressure. Corporate earnings and margins were already under a lot of pressure. Dollar liquidity and liquidity in general was under a lot of pressure. Credit markets were already strained because of the excess debt. Um, and this issue is not going to be short-term in nature. I really think this is going to be the key differentiator over this coming decade. Um, you know, the last decade was really driven by the, the growth and the, and the maturity of China's economy and its impact and its ability to pull the world out of the great financial crisis I think this is going to be the decade where uh, China really struggles, but it really forces a lot of rebalancing, uh, not just in geopolitical tensions, but true economic goods flows, margins, liquidity, sustainability of business models across the globe. Um, I think this is a very, very significant development, and I think we're going to move into an acceleration of a cold war with China, um, and we're already fighting it on multiple fronts. And we saw a very quick reaction out of the Trump administration. We saw announcement today that Chinese students are, are, are going to have their visas revoked, and so they're not going to be able to return for uh, education purposes. I think that's you know just barely an opening shot. The moves out of Taiwan to offer uh, almost like a refugee status for those that want to flee Hong Kong is a real thumb in the eye of China. So I think this is really heating up with very, very profound implications for not just capital markets, but you know societies in general. Right. Yeah, you're starting to see some 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 pushback from what uh, what China's actions are taking on a, on a geopolitical front uh, on on a world basis. And, and so you know you describe the conflict as uh, with with China and the U.S. is accelerating, and I think you described it as Cold War. Um, but you know, given the challenges economically and domestically and abroad, you know, what what do you think the actual financial implications of and, and, and market impact would be? And you know, I know you already touched on things like supply chain and and uh, um, supply chain management and manufacturing and things of that nature. But just love to hear you uh, expand upon that. Yeah, and I I think it gets to the heart of if we want to weaken our opponent, in this case, the Chinese Communist Party, the, the most direct way we can do that is cut off their dollar liquidity. Um, you know, it, I'm, I'm in the camp that China really is a paper tiger when it comes to its financial position, that it, it touts the reserves that it has, the dollar reserves that it has. Whether they're really there is debatable to the extent that that's disclosed. 
but they need them, and they need all of them. And it's going to be very difficult for China to continue to operate without access to dollars, and we're going to make moves to cut off their access to dollars. So it wouldn't surprise me if we seize assets. The discussion around changing legislation and forcing the delisting of Chinese equities on U.S. exchanges, uh, we're going to see further moves like that. And at the same time, it's going to reduce overall profitability. It's going to reduce the tax base of this country. And that's going to have implications at a time when we already weren't able to fund our deficits. So, you know, we had relied on foreign investors to fund U.S. deficits for a number of years, if not decades. That really came to an end in 2014, and we shifted to domestic sources. That then came to an end in 2019, and the Fed was forced to start to fund deficits in the third and fourth quarter of last year. That was accentuated this year. So here we are coming into COVID and depressionary economics, already at wartime level deficits, and you know, an element of wartime financing where we had the Fed financing these deficits, I think we're going to shift into this kind of permanent wartime element, much closer coordination between the Fed and the Treasury. The Fed will continue to print money at a fairly significant rate, and we're going to have to move to yield curve controls. I mean, we've talked about that in the past, but I just think how large deficits are going to be I think the federal government is going to definitely be the, the spender of last resort, and the Fed's going to have to finance those. And so we're going to have to move to yield curve controls in order to suppress yield. And if we're able to move the inflationary needle, that will help relieve some of the leverage. If not, we're liable to see further action. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely in the camp that this is – we were already going to have profound implications as we sought to rebalance our economy, as China sought to rebalance its economy internally, the fact that we went from being frenemies to enemies is only going to make that even more difficult, which means there's going to be an even larger role for federal government and a larger role uh, for financial policy or monetary policy to support that. So, you know, the, the first, second derivative impacts we're going to be talking about for some time and it's incumbent on, upon investors to understand this um, because there's going to be real opportunities to make money, right? You get out ahead of, of these fiscal plans or these areas of the, of the market that are going to do well, uh, you're going to be able to not only protect capital but compound that capital. If you kind of bury your head in the sand and, and don't pay attention to these elements, you're going to wonder why your industry never recovered coming out of COVID-19, and it may have a lot to do with what's happening geopolitically. And if you think about, you know, you, you mentioned one of the tactics that, that the U.S. could, could uh, employ is limiting the access to the U.S. dollar for China. Um, so what would prevent China's ability to transaction the yuan? Uh, is it the uh, countries on the opposing side of, of the transaction, or um, are they even able to, to do that? Can you just, just really clarify a little bit on what you're describing there? Yeah, they're gonna. They would have to be able to convince more of their allies and counterparties to accept their domestic currency. And while you know they're claimed to be close to a fifth of, of global GDP, um, or not quite that high. Pardon me, uh, less than that. You know, barely one percent of global transactions are, are settled in their currency. 
Well, you know, that's a hard art. When you're a, a friend of the U.S. and a friend of the developed world, you have a little bit of leverage to convince people, hey, accept my currency. I'm a, a good global player, and I need to be able to use that because I'm switching from a trade surplus to a deficit and won't have that natural inflow of foreign currencies to use to import the goods I need. Once you become an enemy of the U.S., an enemy of Europe and the developed world, your your currency got a lot less attractive. Um, so you're going to have to resort to other means. And we can't ignore just the structural elements inside China in general. But there's a reason why they've really struggled with restarting their economy. They're not set up to do it, right? It's a command and control. And that entrepreneurial dynamism doesn't exist as it relates to credit intermediation. So the local banks aren't set up to finance small and mid-sized businesses. So they're, they're going back to the same thing they always have, which is infrastructure. So they've got real challenges, and there's not going to be a whole lot of people that are interested in accepting their currency uh, as things stand now. So it, it, it's going to be an uphill battle for them. Right, certainly. Okay, Chris, well, this is good. Uh, you know, We kept this one short today. I appreciate the, the up, recap and update on the past week. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, to monitor things and check back in next week and see how things are holding up. So thank you again. We'll catch you soon. You bet. Take care, Dan. Yeah. Bye-bye. Information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast or any podcast in the series does not constitute professional investment advice or services and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.